Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. This is part two of a two-part uh, series in which I explain and describe uh, my holiday, my recent travelling experience in Indonesia. Uh, I suggest that if you haven't heard part one yet, that you go back and listen to that before listening to this one, okay? Um, because it'll make more sense, you'll get more context and so on. So do go back and listen to part one. If you've already done that, let's get started with part two. Um, and uh, where where did I leave you? I was just about to explain um, some more specific things about where we went and what we saw in the beautiful and mysterious country that is Indonesia. So um, we flew, of course. We didn't walk or uh, uh, take a bicycle or anything. No, uh, we flew. Um, and uh, because Indonesia is so far away, um, it's very difficult to get a direct flight from Paris. So we flew from Paris to Kuala Lumpur. Um, and then from Kuala Lumpur, we flew to Jakarta. And then from Jakarta, we took a domestic flight to Yogyakarta, which is another city in, 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 on Java in Indonesia. And that's where we stayed for our first few uh, nights. Um, all in all, it was about 30 hours of travelling. 30 hours of travelling, which is a huge um, time spent in transit. And it does sort of take its toll on you a bit. Um, usually in the form of jet lag. Um, and you know jet lag, I'm sure you've experienced it. Um, and it can affect you in mysterious ways. You can feel okay one minute. The next minute, you feel like you're in a catatonic state and that you can't keep your eyes open. It can be a bit bizarre. Um, our trick for dealing with jet lag is uh, when you get onto the plane, immediately you have to try and set your watch and set your your mental clock, as it were, to the time at your destination. So as early as possible, you've got to try and start getting ready for the time zone in the destination that you're going to. So that meant getting on the plane and immediately switching our watches, you know, seven hours ahead, so we could then get used to um, the, the time difference. Um, and then, you know, you're at a bit more of an advantage when you arrive because you've spent 24 hours kind of getting used to it. That's the theory. It's not perfect because, of course, your body clock is still there, still operating on your previous time. But it does help a little bit. Um, the flight, absolutely fine. Um, um, and in fact, while I was flying, I did take the chance to record a little bit of um, a little entry for this episode of Luke's English Podcast. And I think I'd like to play that for you now. So here is my, um, my quick podcast entry from the flight, from the, the jumbo jet. Um, it must have been kilometres above the surface of the earth, flying through the air. It was a great opportunity to record 
part of an episode of Luke's English Podcast on a plane. So here we go. I'm going to play that to you right now. Hello, everyone. This is Luke from Luke's English Podcast, of course. And uh, at the moment, I'm actually in a toilet again. Not, the, not for the first time, but I'm not in a toilet on a, on a train. I'm actually in a toilet on a plane. That's right. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't know how high up in the sky I am, but I'm very high up on board uh, a plane uh, on my way to uh, Indonesia, uh, flying from Paris to Kuala Lumpur. And um, I couldn't um, let this opportunity pass, could I? Certainly not. I couldn't let this chance uh, slip through my fingers. I had to record uh, part of an episode in a toilet on a plane. Um, I, I, we've been in the air for about five hours. Um, most of the, well, either the, the, the passengers are either um, sleeping or they're watching in-flight entertainment. Um, the last time I checked, um, last time I checked the map, we were flying almost directly over Iraq, somewhere in the region of Baghdad. I'm also flying on a Malaysian Airlines flight. Um, I'm trying not to think about either of those things too much right now. Um, but um, that's it. I'm basically f I'm uh, with my girlfriend. We're going to have our holiday in Indonesia and from time to time I might record some short entries into this sort of audio diary. Um, okay, I don't know if it's going to get any better than this. I mean, it's quite rare that I'm in a toilet on a plane on a Malaysian Airlines flight uh, somewhere above war-torn Iraq. Um, I don't know what other situations I'll be in when I'm recording, um, but anyway, this is Luke from Luke's English Podcasts uh, signing out. Bye for now. Okay, there's my entry from the toilet on the plane, uh, uh, way way above uh, Iraq on a Malaysian Airlines flight. Right, so um, Kuala Lumpur, very nice airport. Uh, flying to Jakarta. Now, there is a joke. There is a joke, and which I'm going to tell to you, but I don't expect you to get it or even to laugh at it, but I'm going to tell you the joke anyway, because how could I go to uh, Indonesia with my, uh, my future wife and not tell this joke? Well, all right, so there are, there's a series of jokes which involve someone saying, my wife has gone to blah, 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 okay, and uh, and then a response to that. So it's like, my wife's gone to blah, blah, blah. So in this case, it's, my wife's gone to Indonesia. What, Jakarta? No, she went by plane. Right, now that's the joke. And you're probably thinking, what? Well, okay, let me explain. It's not very, it's not worth very much, but it's a, it's a joke that I enjoy. My wife's gone to, gone to Indonesia. Jakarta, now Jakarta here obviously is the capital of Indonesia, but Jakarta also sounds like someone is saying, did you cart her? Jakarta... Did you cart her? A cart is like something you would use in the garden to kind of carry stuff around the garden. You know, it's got a wheel at the front, it's got two handles at the back, and you can use it to carry things around in your garden. It's a cart. Uh, you might use a, a kind of, it's a bit like a trolley. 
Okay, a trolley, a cart. So my wife's gone to Indonesia. Jakarta, no, she went by plane. Right, okay, fine. Um, there's other ones. My wife's gone to the West Indies, the Caribbean. What, Jamaica? No, she chose to go herself. Mm-hmm. Okay, Jamaica, meaning did you make her go? My wife's gone to the, gone to the Caribbean. What, Jamaica? No, she went of her own accord. I, I know, I just know that you're not getting that. I'm just convinced that you're not understanding that. I've got no idea. Normally, in front of an audience, you get, you know, a response. Like, you get laughter, or you get nothing, or you get abuse, or people throw tomatoes at you, or something. Um, you know, that's how you know whether the joke has gone down well or not. I've got absolutely no idea whether that joke has gone down well. But I'm pretty sure that that's in both cases that it's a, a, a probably a failure there's a, there are loads of like uh, jokes based on places like for example i went to see a, a band the other day i went to see a, a a music group the other day they were from somewhere in they were from somewhere in asia what singapore yeah but the drummer was good <clears throat> singapore meaning was the singer poor Hmm. I went to see it's the whole point of that of these jokes is that they're very contrived you see that the setup is like a really contrived way of making a joke it's a kind of joke about jokes in a way like in order to really appreciate this you understand that sometimes jokes are just very sort of contrived that it's not natural Ah, I I promise to you I'm going to do my episode about jokes and then I'll deal with all this kind of stuff in that one episode Um, all right so anyway um so um i went to uh, indonesia with my wife and i didn't cart her uh we did go to jakarta but i didn't cart her there um no we both went by uh, plane fine so we we uh, went straight on to yogyakarta uh the domestic flight was quite a different story to the international one the international flights malaysian airlines despite their their reputation at the moment which is a little bit sketchy after the problems that malaysia airlines have had with one flight disappearing another one being shot down in the sky over the ukraine it's tragic uh but i have to say that when my girlfriend said oh by the way we're flying malaysian airlines i did think for a second what really but it was of course it was absolutely fine uh, and in fact, uh, the staff on the flight were great. They were really friendly and and really helpful. Like more friendly and helpful than than in uh, than than cabin crew normally are. Um, it was great, and uh, they were very efficient. Like perfectly on time, no complaints at all. Um, um, the the domestic flight though from. Uh, uh, Jakarta to Yogyakarta was a slightly different story, and we ended up sitting on the runway in the in the plane for like an hour. Uh, the plane wasn't air conditioned. We were completely smashed after flying for such a long time, and we were just sat there, just sort of like cooking inside the plane, wondering why the plane was delayed. Turns out, a couple of passengers were late, and that's right. The plane just sat on the runway, uh, just waiting for the passengers. Normally, if you're late. Uh, they just take off without you but no not here they're flexible they'll just wait for you Um, which I suppose is good if you're running late if you're having a problem for example the you know there's a a road closure or something something has gone wrong on the road like a truck has broken down and blocked the road you don't need to worry too much about missing your flight because you'll know that the plane is just going to wait there on the runway 
everyone on that plane is just going to have to accept that that's the way it is. Um, so it's less stress if you're late, but it's not it's not if you are in a hurry to leave. Um, we arrived at the airport. Of course, we were immediately surrounded by people all trying to get us into their taxi. Uh, it was really a group of people following us around, crowding around us. Taxi, taxi, taxi. You know, and it was quite overwhelming, a little bit difficult to know who to trust. In the end, we managed to get a metered taxi to take us to the hotel. And we, you know, looked out of the windows in our jet-lagged condition, sort of peered out of the windows at the our first sights of Indonesia. And what we saw was scooter-filled streets, houses, warungs. A warung is like a little street-side restaurant. It's very basic. Normally, they have a grill on the street there and they cook sort of chicken and rice and noodles and things some little plastic tables around around it uh, very very simple sort of pop-up um, little restaurants so lots of these places by the side of the roads with all the locals sitting around eating um, you know government buildings all kinds of shops and market stalls and garages and all sorts of other buildings by the side of these dusty roads as we f- we drove past them all. Um, um, the the driving there is a little bit stressful in terms of the way it's different. Um, it seems that you it's very common to beep your horn if you're driving. The beep the horn beep 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 that basically means I'm here. And it's kind of a warning as if to say, I'm going to overtake you, so watch out, you know, move out of the way. Beep, beep, or um, beep, beep, I'm turning a, a blind corner on the wrong side of the road, so please watch out if you're coming in the other direction. Beep, beep, you know, that kind of thing. Beep, beep, please uh, be aware that we could have a head-on collision, which could, um, you know, result in everyone on this in these cars being uh, instantly killed. That's how it felt. Lots of sort of examples of overtaking on blind corners driving on the wrong side of the road uh quite frightening but after a while you kind of let it all wash over you um lush green rice fields out the windows coconut trees more scooters colorful flags by the side of the road like you get these long flags with different colored um sort of these these long poles with different colored flags flying off them i don't know what they represented but they looked nice uh, the friendly taxi driver who had limited English. We arrived at a, our hotel, which was called the De Omar, um, the De Omar Hotel, and what a fantastic place it is! Uh, it's it's in a town called Tembi, uh, outside um, Yogyakarta, and it's owned by an Australian man called Warwick Purser. Quite an interesting story. Um, he um, he obviously loves Indonesia. He's decided to build a few hotels. He's got a De Omar Hotel um, in uh, Indonesia. He's got another one on Bali. And he, what he does is he kind of works very closely with the local uh, people in the village where he's built his hotel. He's, he employs people from the village. He works very closely with the local community. And it shows there's a really great atmosphere in this place. And you get a sense that it's like a really central part of village life. A lot of people who, who live in the village either work with the hotel or they work for the hotel in some way. Um, Tembi was a lovely, quiet town with very friendly people, just rice paddy fields, just loads of wild chickens roaming around, children playing in the street, really nice place. Um, 
the the hotel the omar hotel was actually nearly destroyed by an earthquake a few years ago we we read some things about it the whole thing was nearly smashed to pieces and they had to rebuild it so it seems it's a kind of a labor of love for warwick purser the australian owner of the place uh, the staff there were unbelievably lovely and friendly just really kind and really sweet always welcoming you with a smile it was really a first class experience and that's really thanks to my girlfriend who's very good at finding these places she decided that we would pay a little bit more than normal i mean it was still very good price if that if we'd stayed in a place like that here in europe we would have paid through the nose for it but there it was kind of reasonable price really uh, we paid a little bit more than the market prices there but we wanted a nice place to start with after our long flight we wanted to arrive in a nice place and it was worth it uh we were that the hotel is kind of like a series of little bungalows let's say or little rooms connected together and um it's designed uh really nicely of the old uh dark wood that they have there um and there are these kind of uh japanese style um uh ponds dotted around between the rooms so these ponds full of um uh, carp fish and uh lilies uh floating on the on the ponds so it's got this atmosphere of like you're surrounded by running water you're surrounded by pond life fish and so on we were shown into our room we had a large four double uh, a four poster bed you know the a bed with a frame around it uh, with a mosquito net going all around the bed huge bed really nice and comfortable luxury um uh chairs desk uh a day bed which is like a, another bed there in the room but it's sort of open and you can just spend time relaxing on there during the day obviously we had our own bathroom and stuff open a couple of doors in one wall and you open out onto a swimming pool a shared swimming pool very tastefully done um sort of stone and the the water looks like it's just natural spring water um little wooden shelter at the end of the pool really really nicely done open out another pair of um doors on the other side of the room you've got your own little private pond with um a little fountain with running water uh, fish frogs in the pond and everything a couple of nice chairs where you can sit and relax and have a drink and just enjoy the atmosphere um next to our bathroom there was a kind of uh, blind you know a blind that covers a window normally these uh, normally a blind covers like a, a window or a pair of uh, glass doors or something in this case you pull up the blind just immediately there there's a pond so a uh, little step down and a pond um so it's just like kind of like living with water around us incredible atmosphere beautiful place um lovely environment to be um on our first uh, first evening my girlfriend was having a shower i heard a little scream come from the shower not nothing too hysterical just a whoo kind of thing turns out there was a crab in the shower you know a crab they they walk around sideways normally in the sea uh they've got like powerful claws a crab yeah um well there was a crab in the in the shower turns out a crab had somehow managed to crawl out of the pond next to the uh bathroom and it made his way into the shower little a little black freshwater crab i had to dispose of him and throw him back into the pond that was a that was an interesting moment it felt like we were surrounded by nature lizards on the walls and things like that it was actually very atmospheric and nice 
um, on the first night, we were treated to a sort of traditional uh, dinner called a ristafel, which I believe is a Dutch thing, because Indonesia, of course, at one point was a Dutch colony um, The um, uh, from the Netherlands, you know. Back in the day, they'd colonised uh, that part of the world and they introduced some aspects of their culture there. And a ristafel is basically like a, a selection of plates of different meat and different uh, foods and things. And so we enjoyed sitting down outside the, the, the hotel in the, in the restaurant area, which is like a little veranda onto the street with a, a view of the rice field. Um, and like there are ducks and geese walking around and, and things. And then sitting there... On the wall in front of us was a group of local musicians playing some really sweet and charming local music. And then um, just down the street, carrying candles and plates of food, members of staff from the hotel walked through into the hotel and started serving us food. It was incredibly uh, atmospheric and a lovely introduction to our first night there. so yes, the musicians. It was a it was a beautiful kind of music they were playing. Very charming and sweet. They were playing a combination of instruments, sort of ukuleles. It looked like guitars, a cello. Someone was playing a cello like a bass, like a double bass, but it was a cello, a violin, some traditional wire percussion instruments and drums. It was absolutely lovely. Obviously, I ordered some of the local beer, and the beer there is called Bintang, and it's very nice. It's a kind of a dry. Um, sort of uh, lager we would call it really nice beer bintang i recommend it if you get the chance to drink some bintang do it it's good stuff um obviously the foods are the traditional stuff like chicken satay lots of lemongrass and um uh, cashew nut and chili and garlic and stuff tasty um so yogyakarta is um is probably java's cultural capital it's not the the administrative capital of of the island but it is the cultural capital and it has um a sheikh's palace there is a sheikh in yogyakarta like a sort of uh prince an emperor that kind of thing they call him the sheikh he has a palace um uh there and also another palace another place called the water castle um and we visited both of them on our second day uh the palace is uh, where the sheikh lives um and um you can visit his palace in the mornings and in the, in the afternoons uh it's closed and that's when he kind of like you know chills out there um the palace is a nice place to visit you can walk around and see some um some sort of displays of the artwork that he has there are portraits of previous sheikhs that have lived there um and you get to see some some like nice beautiful fabrics paintings of the sheikhs as i said bits of treasure and so on when we went there were gangs of local school kids who were were visiting the palace for a school trip and they'd obviously been told by their teachers that they had to try and interview any english speakers that they met so we got regularly kind of kidnapped by these groups of kids who would interview us you know, asking what our names were and where we were from and talking to us. We were actually really pleasantly surprised that some of them were very good at English and they were very communicative and they were willing to to talk and they even wanted our email addresses. I don't know why. I think maybe as some kind of evidence that they'd actually talked to us so they could show show their their teachers. Naturally, I gave them the uh, website address for teacherluke.co.uk. So who knows, maybe there are some young 
Indonesian kids listening to this right now. I wonder if they have actually tuned in. Um, anyway, what else? We also visited uh, Taman Sari, which is the water castle, which was built at the end of the 18th century. And this was a place where the sheikh would spend time with his concubines. Concubines, of course, are basically like his mistresses his girlfriends. He was married, and he, he was married to, to more than one woman, but he also had... Uh, I don't know if the sheikh still has concubines, but anyway, uh, back in the day, he had um, lots of these other women who um, would entertain him. These often were women that he'd kind of kidnapped, because um, um, uh, he would kind of, like... Um, go to different areas and um um he would uh let's see wait a minute uh yeah so these are the, he would conquer different places and when con after conquering them obviously he would then take a selection of some of the women from those places kidnap them maybe um and so these concubines were then kept at the the water castle or they lived nearby and he would meet them here at the water castle um there are kind of pools of water sort of like large swimming pools uh very luxurious and that's where the concubines would wait and they would sort of hang around in the water um and the sultan uh the sheikh sultan that's the right word the sultan would sit in a tower and sort of watch them and then pick one or two to then spend time with him and he'd probably then you know have sex with them i suppose um and now i i viewing the water castle and just being able to picture it i wondered how that must have felt for these women how must how how must they have felt Either they would have been horrified, you know, because they'd, e they'd, they'd basically been kidnapped and taken against their will. So they may have been horrified, like it's some kind of horrendous nightmare being forced to, to you know, sleep with this guy. Either they would have been horrified, or it's quite possible that some of them may have actually been honoured. Because in a way that this, this was an honour for them, and it could mean a slightly better life. And even the, the children of the, of the sultan, uh, born from his concubines um they had privileges and and were considered slightly higher status people so it's a it must have been a weird mixed up feeling of being kidnapped and taken and then being chosen by the sultan because on one hand you're thinking no thanks but on the other hand you might think well this is a chance to you know have a slightly better life. It's a, it was a weird time. Anyway, it's amazing that it all occurred right there and we were able to see it, including his massive bed. We even saw like his, his huge bed that he had, where I imagine he entertained more than one guest at a time. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm just, Im I'm just imagining there, just speculating. Uh, we were shown around by a guy whose family had lived in the grounds of this castle for generations. And he worked as a kind of warden and tour guide for the castle. And he told us that the modern-day sultan um, um, was actually in the process of selling that land to foreign investors. And that, in fact, it had been sold to Starbucks. And that they were going to develop the sort of building area around the castle. Imagine that. Imagine what the place might be like in a few years. It might be going to visit the water castle sponsored by Starbucks, and there'll be it'll be a combination of a, a heritage site and a Starbucks coffee restaurant. It's quite unbelievable, really. Um, 
And I got the impression that the, the, the current sultan doesn't really care about his people that much, that he's more interested in making money. But what do I know? Um, um, we had drinks in town that evening. It's quite hard to find places to have drinks. It was quite fun and yet slightly worrying to kind of ride around in a taxi, not quite knowing where you're going, searching for a, a place in the guidebook that doesn't actually exist anymore. Uh, but it was it was nice to kind of walk around the the the, the streets. It, it's a different atmosphere at night. Um, we did manage to walk around Tembi, as I said. The place is full of nature, frogs in the ponds all around the hotel, birds and lizards in the ceiling at night. You hear kind of like sounds in the ceiling and it's like, what is that? Probably just a bird or a lizard crawling around. The crab in the shower, of course, ducks, geese and chicken roaming around the village everywhere, children playing in the streets. The incredibly loud call to prayer from the mosque nearby at 4.30 in the morning that woke us up, but we didn't really mind. Uh, Borobudur. Um, is a Buddhist temple, which is about one hour from, from Yogyakarta. We went to visit that. It was built in the 9th century. The 9th century. That's a hell of a long time ago. Um, and um, basically, it's kind of a Buddhist pilgrimage site these days, built, uh, as I said, a long time ago. And it's made of six square platforms with three circular platforms on top. It's very big. You, it's at the top of a hill. It's very impressive structure to see. And um, you kind of walk around each platform and look at the carved reliefs on each wall. So imagine sort of six square platforms getting smaller each time. And they're like, you walk around them, then you walk up a few steps and walk around the next one, which is a bit smaller. Walk up a few more steps, walk around that. And on the walls of each platform, there are carvings in, in the stone. And the, the carvings are all sort of different stories of the Buddha's life. And they're all kind of uh, stories that explain the Buddha's journey from birth all the way through to his eventual sort of status as an enlightened being, the first one to achieve nirvana. Um, and they're also, in these carvings, kind of cautionary tales about how a life of pleasure can ultimately lead to a life of suffering. And the idea in the design of this place is that by walking up and looking at all of these carvings, you learn about the process of achieving nirvana or enlightenment. And as you get further and further up, the images that you see represent the stages of enlightenment until you get to the top where you see a large statue of Buddha in a kind of state of nirvana. It's fascinating. There are over 2,500 relief carvings and 504 Buddha statues. Amazing place. Apparently, it was abandoned in the 14th century after the decline of the Hindu religion. Hinduism and Buddhism are sort of related. And often in these places, these temples are uh, sort of a mix of Buddhism and Hindu religion. They kind of worked together to an extent. So after the decline of Hindu religion in the 14th century, the place apparently was abandoned. And then the introduction of Islam into Javanese culture um, may have led to uh, the, the place being sort of ignored. It was discovered again in the early 19th century by a Dutch engineer called H.C. Cornelius, who was working for the then British ruler of Java, who was, no, who was known as the Governor-General, Sir Thomas Stamford Raffles. 
Um, so Sir, Stom- Sir Thomas Stamford Raffles was the British Governor General of Java at that point in the 19th, early 19th century. He sent the Dutch engineer H.C. Cornelius to go and find Borobudur Temple. It's like something out of a kind of Victorian adventure story, don't you think? Imagine H.C. Cornelius, he set out into the Javanese jungle with some guidelines from the locals, and they found it after slashing through the jungle and burning down the undergrowth in order to discover it. They found it, but it was overgrown, covered in earth, covered in volcanic dust. That's right, after, after various volcanoes and volcanic eruptions covered the thing in dust, it was almost underground, covered in dirt and mud and overgrown. Gradually, over the years, it was uncovered and restored. Um, UNESCO did a huge restoration job on it in the 70s, almost taking the whole thing to pieces, cleaning it and putting it back together again. And now it's all cleaned up and it looks great. And it's, it's back, it's restored to its status as a pilgrimage site. And it's also the number one tourist destination in the country. Um, so it's a bit like a pyramid with three, three circular platforms on the top. And um, as you get further and further up, there are more and more statues of the Buddha, some of them sitting under these kind of bell-like structures. Um, it, it's, it's a fascinating and mysterious place. Plus, you get views of the local f- sort of uh, land from the top of it. Really, really good. You can just Google pictures of Borobudur if you want to see what I'm talking about. We also visited another place called Prambanan, which is a Hindu temple similar to Angkor Wat in Cambodia. It's a large number of temples, very large sort of um, structures, like sort of diamond-shaped temples, uh, all dedicated to different Hindu gods and with all kinds of carvings on the walls of each temple again and statues of the gods used to be contained within inside uh, used to be contained within each temple but they're not there anymore unfortunately the statues have gone um, in fact almost the entire thing almost the entire uh, set of temples at Prambanan were were, um, were knocked down all of them were smashed to the pieces and knocked down to the ground by an earthquake but they've been rebuilt again um, and now you can see them restored uh, and it's very impressive there are still many other structures nearby that are still basically rubble like lots of rocks and rubble on the ground because they haven't been built again um it's a very impressive place we spent uh, a few hours there staying for the sunset um and then we we went home other things that we could have done were a demonstration of a traditional Ramayana ballet dance telling the old Hindu story of King Rama. That's a a popular thing for tourists to do. It's a sort of several hours in the evening you see this traditional Indonesian ballet dance that tells the story of a Hindu king. But we didn't see that. In the end, again, we couldn't do too much. We flew to Lombok, um, Lombok uh, Island. We skipped Bali, as I said, and flew to Lombok. We stayed in a hotel in a place called Surabaya on the way there. Um, and anyway, 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 let me skip a little bit. Um, um, so I can't, I can't go into all of this in too much detail. Lombok is the next island after Bali, and it's less touristy than Bali. But it's just as beautiful with lush greenery, sandy beaches, friendly people, and a large volcano in the middle. We stayed in the resort area of Senjiji to get some beachside relaxation. Uh, it's a beautiful little peninsula there, 
Um, and sandy beaches going all the way around uh, with coral reefs around uh, them. Great for snorkeling. You can spend time on the beach reading. Uh, there, were, there was live music um, at the beach every evening at 6pm while the sun went down. There was a band playing live music, playing stuff like Santana and classic bits of rock music. Um, it was really nice to spend some time there, get a bit of sun, get a bit of relaxation done. Uh, delicious food in the local warungs. We bought some handicraft in the local market, strolled around the beach at night, all that kind of stuff. It was lovely. We also planned our Man- Mount Rinjani climb. And I'd like to tell you about that in a bit more detail now. Okay, so Mount Rinjani is the second largest volcano in Indonesia. It, but although it's not the, the largest, it's still pretty massive. It's nearly three times the height of the UK's highest mountain, which is Ben Nevis in Scotland. It's an active volcano. What a good idea, Luke. Yeah, hey, let's climb up an active volcano. What could go wrong? Um, it's an active volcano. It First of all, it rises up to about 2,500 metres above sea level. And there, there is a crater rim. A crater, you know, like a volcano, the sides go up and then there's a crater in the middle where all the fire comes out. Well, um, this one rises up about two and a half thousand meters and then there's a large wide crater rim, which is about seven kilometers wide. And in the middle of it, there's a large lake. It's beautiful. There's a lake there. And then in the middle of the lake, there's another smaller volcano where obviously other eruptions have happened more recently so within the volcano there's another small volcano it's incredible that little volcano last erupted in 2010 i believe then the absolute peak of the mountain is on one side of the crater where it rises up uh, to 3726 meters above sea level and if you can climb all the way to the top of that you're given an incredible view of the surrounding area you can see down into the crater with the lake and the mini volcano and you can see out across Lombok you can see out to the ocean and you can see um, the other islands like Bali and you can see um, mountains and volcanoes on the other islands in Indonesia it's absolutely stunning but it's incredibly challenging to climb up to the top um I'm going to try and tell you about it now. Okay, so we thought, we, since we're going to be going to Indonesia, we should do one mountain climb. We should do one volcano. Um, let's do Rinjani. My girlfriend read about it, and she read lots of accounts of how people had spent three days and two nights trekking up Rinjani. None of these accounts seem to quite explain just how difficult it is. I don't know why. Maybe people don't want to, don't want to seem like they they're weak or something you know everyone was writing oh it was fine it wasn't too difficult i don't know who these people are maybe they're expert climbers but in my experience and and just looking at all the other people who climbed with us it was very tough we found it to be very tough everyone else around us seemed to be finding it to be extremely tough even the guides and porters admitted that it was really hard to climb up this mountain we didn't realize that until later but anyway uh, we're glad that we did it but it was hard um three days two nights um oh my god i i've 
like during the experience, it felt like one of the, the, the toughest things that I've ever done. And it felt also like one of the most amazing things I've ever done. And I just couldn't wait to be able to tell everyone about it. It's so hard now after a week, after over a week of, of uh, being back and, you know, after, you know, after over a week since I did it, it's hard really to capture the experience of it. But I'll try and do my best for you now. And I'll try and keep it brief. Okay. So imagine... Um, Okay, imagine you set out. Um, what, what I'm trying to explain to you is not only the physical challenge of it, but the mental challenge too. Okay, uh, the mental challenge. Now, you know, for example, when you have to, um, if you're walking up a hill, or if you're walking up uh, the side of a mountain, or if you're walking up lots and lots of steps, you know how it exhausting it is after let's say even just half an hour of walking up steps that's pretty exhausting imagine doing it for 12 hours like even after an hour and you think my god i'm, I'm exhausted already how long how much more of this is there and you, the guide says oh about another 10 hours well yeah that's quite hard um so we started walking through farmland, carrying stuff on our backs. We had uh, one guide. He was a lovely guy. He was amazing. His name was uh, Pahi, and he was just the sweetest guy. Uh, it, for me, he looked a bit like a teddy bear. Seriously, he was kind of small. He was really, really cute-looking guy, really sweet. He was probably about 45 years old or something. He looked like a teddy bear. He looked like a, an Ewok from Return of the Jedi. Um, I don't mean to to um, make fun of him or anything, because I'm not. He was just brilliant. Uh, but he was our guide, and he carried a huge backpack on his back, carrying a lot of stuff for us, including lots of water. We we asked him to if we could carry stuff and he said, no, 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 no. He refused to let us carry any any of his things. And we thought, well, it is his job. He is a professional after all. Also, we had a couple of porters who were incredible. The porters are just local guys who work on the mountain. And they their job is to carry your stuff up the mountain, right? And how do they do it? Well, basically, they have one big piece of bamboo, one long pole of bamboo, and they hang baskets off each end of, of this bamboo. The bamboo is thick. It's probably oh, about 15 centimeters thick. So these are big branches of bamboo with these big heavy baskets containing loads of bottles of water, cooking equipment, camping equipment, and stuff like that. Um, and so they had to like carry all this stuff up the mountain. And they're just there in shorts and t-shirts wearing flip-flops. They go up and down the mountain carrying these incredibly heavy uh, loads, wearing flip-flops, sometimes in bare feet. And they're skipping up and down the mountain. They're incredible. It's unbelievable. Um, walking through farmlands, you walk up then the, through the foothills and then up into the much more challenging, quite steep slopes of Mount Rinjani. Um, it took us seven days. Seven days? No. It took us seven hours, the first part of the climb. And that's in the boiling hot heat with the sun bearing down, pouring sweat. The ground underneath our feet, uh, a lot of it was just sort of dust or sand it's very hard to climb on it you climb up and and you lose your footing it's easy to slip uh the dust is in the air you get covered in dust it mixes in with your sweat and you end up with like crap all over your legs i mean i was covered in mud basically for three days i had it in my ears my eyes up my nose um i had it in my mouth uh smeared all over my legs 
uh, we didn't really have a chance to have a shower at any time. I know I'm making it sound like it was horrible. And in a way, it was horrible. But you kind of go through all the horrible stuff in order to get the ultimate achievement, which is to get to the top. Seven hours of climbing, completely exhausted, we got to the top of the crater rim. Um, And uh, that's where we camped that night, saw an incredible sunset um, that evening. We got up at 2 a.m., two o'clock in the morning so that's basically we went to bed at like seven tried to sleep uh feeling a bit nervous about the climb the next day up at 2 a.m in order to climb the very challenging um uh slope to the summit and that is um about three or four hours of climbing in the middle of the night and that was really the the toughest part not just that it was in the middle of the night but just the 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 gradient of the climb was really really steep the ground underneath our feet was like very uneven sand and pebbles volcanic dust basically is what you're walking through and it was like you you kind of every step is an incredible effort and you step up a few steps and slide back down. Sometimes you slip and fall. Um, there were times where I felt like we were walking on the moon. I mean, it was dark and w- there were incredible stars in the sky above us. We were way up above the clouds. The air up there is is very thin. There's not much oxygen. And after a while, you get to this incredibly steep section uh, where you you every step is a huge effort. And... Um, I was scared, you know, I was genuinely scared that we wouldn't make it. I thought that I I was wondering if my girlfriend would make it. She doesn't have much climbing experience. I've got a bit, but we're not advanced climbers by any means. And it was a real, real challenge. Um, And it was really just a case of like battling against the mountain um, one step at a time. You know, if you if you think about how much further you've got to go when you realise that you're absolutely exhausted, then mentally you will be defeated and you can't do it. You really have to try to stay positive and try to realise that you're just going one step at a time. Don't try and think about the entire challenge because it will be too much. Um, there were moments of drama up there. For example, at about 4.30 a.m. when we were really high, maybe about three and a half thousand meters above sea level, there's a cold wind blowing past and a very narrow track with very sharp drops on either side. And you think, oh my God, you know, I could slip and fall at any moment. Um, it was freezing cold. My girlfriend was shivering. She was like shivering. Her jaw was chattering. And I was like worried, you know, trying to keep her warm, trying to rub her hands, trying to help her up the mountain. Um, and um, I, there was a moment where um, I tried to get something out of her backpack, standing on the side with this freezing wind blowing through um, in this kind of dark wasteland at the you know, in the sky, it felt like, with just the stars above us. Um, I was trying to get something out of her bag, but my hands were so frozen that I could hardly control the zip. And that at that moment, her zip on her bag decided to break. And the whole zip came out. I was trying to fix it, and the zip came off in my hand. Uh, it was like a sort of moment of drama. Now, you might think, oh, that's no big deal. But in that situation it feels like a huge drama because if her bag is open all of her stuff's going to go flying out um and also we're going to need to to carry all that stuff back down the other side of the mountain in the next couple of days so um i was trying to like 
transfer all the stuff from her bag to my bag. Things were flying away in the wind. Um, her iPhone headphones just flew off and flew out into, into the middle of the air, lost. Um, and she was like shivering at this point. I was thinking, oh my God, we've got to keep moving, we've got to keep moving. Because there, as I said, there's no, mass, no mountain rescue there, no helicopters on the island at all, nothing. If you can't make it, the only thing you can do is, is just walk down. So it's, it's pretty precarious. Um, um, yeah, really stunning experience. I, I'm really not getting through to you the challenge. You're just going to have to take my word for it. But ultimately, we got to the top. There was a moment where I slipped and I hit my leg on the ground. I hit my leg on a stone and my whole leg went dead. Just searing pain went through my leg. The whole thing just went dead. And I was like limping, screaming, limping up the mountain. It was like World War II or something. I mean, it really was. It felt like we were... I I can't really get through to you at this point. How I wish I could. I wish I just was able to describe in much more emotive terms what it was like. But I think you're getting the idea, right? It was challenging. It was the most difficult thing that we've ever done. And finally getting to the top, which we did manage to do, as the sun broke uh, up from the horizon, was really quite an emotional experience, actually, because I felt proud. You know, I felt proud of her for for making it and for having the mental resolve to get up to the top when i i was concerned that she 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 wasn't going to make it um i was proud of us both it was a stunning experience and um incredible really i wouldn't do it again no thanks no way but i'm very glad that we did do it and we took photos up there and it's something that we'll remember for the rest of our lives then of course we had to get back down again and that was really only the beginning the idea was seven hours to the crater summit, four hours up to the top, sun sunrise, three hours back down, then you get a little break, half an hour, then it's another three hours climbing down rocks, three hours of climbing down rocks until you get to the lake, where you get a chance to relax and bathe in the hot springs, then another three or four hours of going up the other side of the crater. You camp there and then you spend eight hours walking down the mountain on the other side. Now, when you realize that you've got to the top of the mountain and you're finished, you know, you're physically uh, knackered, um, it's quite overwhelming when you realize how far you've got to go after that. So we managed to get back down to the bottom completely exhausted. I mean, it's surprising what your body can do if you ask it to. Um, the body is... is um, the body will go quite far. It's amazing, yeah, what you're capable of. Uh, if if mentally you're you're prepared to keep going, the body does go along with you. Um, but we got down to the other side and had a little bite to eat and set off with about 20 minutes left. Um, and it was quite clear that my girlfriend was not well, which is not uncommon when you're going traveling to places like this. It had happened to me several years ago in Laos, I picked up some kind of bacteria and it it basically took me out of my life for 12 hours. I spent one night um, every half an hour getting up to go to the toilet. I couldn't even drink water. I couldn't keep water down. If you can't keep something down, that means you eat it and it immediately comes back. I couldn't even keep my water down. I was taking mouthfuls of water. That was coming straight back up. Hell. I mean, hell for 12 hours 
all of the liquid was ejected from my body and I felt like I was going to die. Uh, That's normal. That's how you feel when you get that kind of condition. Um, The worst thing about it was that the next day I had to get on a bus for seven hours and the bus was driving around these corners through the hills and I was sitting on there just feeling... Uh, like I was going to die and I couldn't, you know, all I had was half a bottle, half a small bottle of water. Um, the only thing I could listen to on my Walkman was was a solo album by Sting. That's how bad it was, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the only thing that I, I could stand to listen to was a solo album by Sting. Yes, I couldn't even listen to uh, hardcore music. All I could listen to was uh, sort of insipid middle of the road easy listening music that's how bad it was now i felt like that was that was pretty awful and i didn't eat for 32 hours and i lost a lot of body weight and all that kind of thing it's normal it happens but i it felt pretty awful now imagine that on the side of a mountain unbelievable and so we decided that we would instead of going down to the lake and back up the other side and so on we would return the way we came still seven hours of walking down a hill uh, you know, in stones and mud and 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 dust and everything, uh, and so the next day we started and yeah, she was not well, taking tiny little steps. I don't know if you if you've ever felt like that when you when you're in that condition. Just walking to the bathroom is enough of a challenge, but walking down the side of a mountain in the middle of the day, um, yeah, I think you get the idea. She was taking these little steps. She was unsure on her feet. Every now and then she slipped. She even cut her hand open on a rock. Uh, the porter and me were looking after her. I was trying to encourage her, keep her positive and everything. But I honestly was worried, especially at one point after about five hours when she hadn't eaten and she could hardly drink. We got to a rest point and I thought she was going to pass out. She nearly did pass out in my arms. I was holding her up. I, um, you know, she had to lie down. I was staring at her as she was lying there, staring at her, trying to make sure that she was still breathing. I mean, I was panicking. I don't know what would happen, but I just felt like she was going to collapse from dehydration or exhaustion or something. I was checking her pulse and everything. Uh, it was really, really worrying. The things that saved her were three, three things. One, uh, was a little lie down, lying down and sleeping for about half an hour, did her the world of good. The second thing was a drink, a Japanese drink called Pokari Sweat. Pokari Sweat is a kind of energy drink, a sports drink, which is specifically designed to help your body replenish lost fluid and lost body salts. And it was exactly what she needed. Uh, Pokari sweat is a strange drink. If you're in Japan, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you're not in Japan, yes, it is called Pokari sweat. Sweat, like the stuff that comes out of your head when you're hot. The liquid that drips down your forehead. Sweat, yes. Pokari sweat. Now, it even looks like sweat. It's kind of like a pale sort of liquid it looks like a salty water or something it looks doesn't look very appetizing tastes a bit lemony it's quite nice 
but it does look like sweat and you think is this sweat is this like the is it is this actually the sweat of a pokari that i'm drinking what is a pokari i don't even know i mean are they sort of like these creatures that they hang up in some hot room and they catch all the sweat from pokaris and it goes into a bottle and then we drink pokari sweat and it helps us to uh, climb mountains i don't know what this stuff is but it really really worked and it really gave her a lot of um it replaced a lot of her lost fluids and sugar and salt and stuff like that and put her back on her feet and the third thing that kept her going was the um was the prospect of a clean shower and a bed honestly that was really like the light at the end of the tunnel for her like i just want to get to this bed on this island at the end of this trip and that's what kept her going. And in fact, by the time we got down the the worst part of the hills, she was actually impressively full of energy. And the Pokari sweat had replaced her fluids and she was full of energy. And she was suddenly motoring, marching down the foothills of this mountain. Uh, it was really um, touch and go for a moment, but ultimately she pulled through. And thankfully, I mean, she she always talks about going on a diet and losing weight. Well, this is the ideal way to lose weight. Just climb a mountain for 30 hours. I think that's a great way of losing weight. I don't recommend it, but it definitely works. Anyway, she's absolutely fine now. And of course, we're both super glad and happy to have uh, managed to make it down up and down that mountain in one piece. Um, Now, if you listen to part one of this episode, uh, there was an introduction to this account of my holiday in which you found me on a boat facing rather a terrible situation. Well, after having done the mountain and feeling like we'd been taken apart by God and put back together again, new, um, and yet completely exhausted and sort of spiritually uh, bereft and all that kind of thing. We took a, a, a truck journey down to the port, uh, trying not to pass out on the back of this tr- truck for, for about three hours, and we finally arrived in the port completely smashed. Um, ready to just collapse right there and then but we had to take this boat and we did manage to get on the boat and it was completely crowded and it was quite frightening because the boat was very low in the water and there were loads of people on the boat even the locals seemed to be stressed out as if this was dangerous as if this was the one this was the one boat that would crash and 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 change things um and it was true that three days earlier a very similar boat had capsized in the water near the island of komodo and had drowned many of its passengers so we were understandably very worried and that's quite normal sort of experience to be in a place like this in these situations it's incredibly exciting and adventurous but it is quite frightening because you think to yourself there's no safety regulation. We might not make it to the other end. Well, you'll be glad to know that, in fact, the boat didn't capsize. We didn't get thrown into the water. That's just, that was just my fear. That's just what I was scared of when I closed my eyes. That's what I imagined could happen. But thankfully, it didn't happen. Okay. My, I count the story that I said, that I told you at the beginning of part one, that was just a kind of imagined version of what could easily have happened but which didn't happen and we did get to the other side and we did spend three days on this beautiful little island called Gili Air 
which um, is an incredible place. The locals are friendly, amazing white sandy coral beaches with great snorkeling. I spent time snorkeling around. Snorkeling, you know, that's when you swim with flippers on. You swim with a mask and a snorkel, which is a tube uh, that comes out of your mouth and allows you to breathe while looking at all the fish and stuff. I saw lots of gorgeous fish, tropical fish and things like that. Um, clou- uh, what did I see? Parrot fish. It's a fish that looks like a parrot. Uh, not a dead parrot, in this case a, a living parrot, uh, beautiful green colour with like a little beak and everything. I saw a puffer fish, you know those fish that puff up with spikes? I saw one of them swimming around, I followed that around. Uh, I saw barracuda swimming around in the water and I thought, barracuda, don't they bite? They were fine though. Um, I Unfortunately, I didn't see any turtles. I really wanted to see turtles and I didn't go diving. I know that uh, that island is famous for its diving, where you can go deep sea diving. I'd never done it before, and we just never really got round to it. We just were quite happy walking around, glad to be alive, uh, enjoying our time there. So all in all, it was a really great time. We didn't capsize in the middle of the sea. The boat arrived safely. Um, um, as I said before in this episode, traveling is an amazing experience, but at times it can feel a little, little bit scary. I just wanted to express the adrenaline rush and the fear factor that you can experience in these situations. On that boat ride and during the, the Rinjani trek, I really was trying not to panic sometimes. I was trying not to get freaked out by what could have happened. You might be thinking, Luke, Luke, you worry too much or something like that. But I think Actually, I'm just being realistic. We do have these moments of fear, and that's what really makes it exciting. Sometimes you have to get a little close to the edge in order to really experience real life. When everything's so safe, it can get a little bit boring, can't it? And that's right, it is character-building stuff. Okay, and I think that brings me to the end of this account of my time in Indonesia. Um, I do hope that you've listened all the way to the end. If you're still with me, then well done. You're an extra special, super brilliant turbo listener from the future. Um, And uh, I'll be talking to you again very soon. And before long, you'll be able to hear uh, competition entries, which I've had from listeners to the podcast. It's great to be back, ladies and gents. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of this episode of the podcast. I'll speak to you again very soon. Please do leave your comments, thoughts, suggestions, ideas, questions, criticism, hate mail, love mail, whatever it is that you want to say. Please do leave your comments at teacherluke.co.uk. But for now, from me, it's goodbye. Bye, bye, bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.